Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 110, Davos 3 in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and holy shit, 110 episodes. You looked really doubtful. You guys, you all cannot see Eliana, but she had the most doubt. I, I was worried I said something wrong or that I messed up the episode count again. I, I don't know, but you know, I I am like Davos in this episode full of doubt that, I, that we could have done this. And you know, it's not just that we've done 110 episodes, as many of you know, it's 110 A Song of Ice and Fire episodes. And we do, of course, have Patreon episodes for all of you. We recently released our November Patreon episode, which was about finally at long last, the Lysine Spring and the end of Regency covering uh, the reign of Aegon III and the last that we know of it in in big detail from Fire and Blood. Yes, the Lysine Spring. And it, it's actually a really thick part of the book. It's yeah. like 40 pages. And I love it. I really enjoy that part of it. I really enjoyed learning about the Rojars or the Rojares or however you want to pronounce it. So if you want to learn all the different pronunciations that Eliana and I have provided for you, you can pick your favorite because we sure didn't. Were we consistent? You tell us. Our patrons get a special episode every month, $5 per month, Stranger Tear and Up. It'll be either A Song of Ice and Fire or every other month, a His Dark Materials themed episode. So this December, we'll have a His Dark Materials themed episode for you. And we're going to have some special guests we'll be announcing next week. But we have another really exciting announcement about special guests. I think Eliana and I have been really excited about this one. We have. We have been. We've been trying to keep it quiet. Something that we've been working on. And next week... We are going to be joined by our good friend, Quinn, from Quinn's Ideas on YouTube. You might know Quinn from his extensive analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, or even more thorough, his analysis of Dune. We had a really great opportunity to guest over on his channel on YouTube for an episode on Melisandre a while back, and we'll have to link that. It was very fun. And we're very excited to have him back. This is like a reunion, actually, right? Because Melisandre is pretty significant in this chapter. But bigger than that, Quinn recently has written and is publishing Tadia, a 48-page horror fantasy graphic novel about a young girl who was born, well, created into a noble family of manipulative, powerful witches. I'm really excited to hear more about this. Uh, I know Eliana, I think you also chipped in on the campaign he did to get this going, and I can't wait for mine. I don't know which perk you chose, but I'm very excited. Yeah, I don't remember which one I chose. It was one of the ones I I hope Quinn signed it. That's the one I think I picked, so uh, maybe it let me try Maybe we can bit. ask him if he'll sign it next week. Oh, yeah, that would be fun on air. But yeah, so I'm actually yeah. super excited. From the first moment where he was like talking about putting this together, I'm a big fan of comics. I was really looking forward to the day that it would go on sale. And I, I'm like, you know, Quinn... As you said, covers a lot of these other fantasy and sci-fi series, but he loves horror and and things like that. And it's exciting to see him butt into his own creation and see what comes out of that from someone who loves this genre. Yeah, and the story is actually a background of lore that he created, right? It's really distinct and he's influenced with it from like Celtic mythology, the Fomori of the Otherworld, Nordic, African mythology, a ton of different fantasy elements. So I'm excited to get my copy. I have a, I watched the video and I've read mm -hmm. some of the stuff he's put out, but 
I'm not spoiling myself any further. I'm very excited for the experience, and I really hope that next week he will be able to let us know, I don't know, maybe some insider info, you know? Agreed. Like, I've seen some of it, but I'm also trying to, like, go into it, like, just fall into the story. And the art looks amazing, too. Like, I mean, that's a big draw, right, for a lot of comics. I'm someone who loves art and, yeah. Yeah, and really cool is the coven that representation he's bringing into it because he is an avid sims player as you may have noticed i play a good amount of the sims sims of the simulation you know fame from ea and maxis uh and we're both big sims 4 fans we talk about it pretty often we were pretty hyped about the new pack so i'm sure we are going to ask him what his opinion was on the new expansion pack, Snowy Escape from The Sims 4, because I am, I'm split on it. So we'll talk about that next week. But more importantly, we'll be talking about Davos 4 in A Storm of Swords with Quinn. Again, uh, reuniting to talk about Stannis and Melisandre and Davos. Yeah, and you know, part of what's fun about this is, as all of you know, we are diehard Stannis fans on this podcast. And by that, I mean we... We are, uh, we are, I think, very justifiably critical of Stannis on this podcast. And, you know, Quinn is also recorded with our friends Gray Area and Jeff uh, on a sort of judge, a trial of Stannis. So we thought, who better to come join us to be critical of Stannis? That's, I think, <laughs> putting it lightly, what we're going to do next week. Quinn has the credentials, that is for sure. So next week, Quinn will be your other, other host, a girl gone canon officially. Once you come on this, you are officially a girl gone canon. That is for kind life. of the rule. Yep. Um, I was going to say I don't make the rules, but I literally do. Mm-hmm. So that being said, the last piece of housekeeping we have for you all is that we will have an altered holiday schedule. Coming up in December here, we will have that out for patrons first, and you will hear about it next week on Davos 4. It'll be brief. Nothing crazy. You're still getting episodes, but we're going to move some stuff around, so stay tuned for that. Yes, and part of that holiday schedule that we'll be talking about will include when you can anticipate the Discord brunch slash happy hour. So sorry to Lenny, who recently commented on Podbean, we read these, of uh, being sad that they had missed... (laughs) Missed the brunch slash happy hour and the announcement for it, so we'll make sure to flag that this time around a little more prominently. Like, are we are we a little crazy right now with His Dark Materials, which you'll be seeing episodes of those in your feed as well, and with Aswaf? Yes, yes we are, and this is the way we like to live our life. Yes. Do we? On the wire. Do we like it? Debatable. That said, we have a like our holiday schedule, which is going to be slightly altered, we have a slightly altered lightning round. Again, in the past few weeks, I've been altering our lightning round, where if you're new here, we tell you what happened real quick, get through it, chop chop, but Davos has a lot of chapters in between his chapters, all the time, a lot. So I chose characters that are more isolated from the other point of views, Jamie, Catelyn, Danny, Bran, and the exception, of course, this list is Tyrion, who is post-Blackwater politicking, which feels important. We'll catch up with Arya, Jon, Sansa, and Sam another day, aka some of the other best POVs. Actually, they're all good. But <laughs> that said, Eliana, will you read us in on Jamie too? Jamie too. 
Jamie, Brienne, and Cleos arrive at the Kneeling Man Inn, where Jamie recalls some of the past traumas of working for King Ares II Targaryen. Tyrion too. Varys reveals some of the tricks of the trade, like having connections to the Citadel. Tyrion hopes to use Varys' connections to spend time with Shay, but he knows the facade cannot last forever. Catelyn too. Rob returns, and Catelyn is surprised to not be heavily chastised by her son. Until he introduces her to his new wife! <laughs> Edmure is the one who gets berated for his failures in battle, although Rob broke the main alliance that they needed to win independence, but also at the same time, Walter Frey sucks, so, like, let's really just, you know, stop pointing fingers. <laughs> I thought that was a good centrist take on it all, Thank truly. <laughs> but also, Rob was projecting. He was, <clears throat> uh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. As, as boys are wont to do. As 16-year-old children do. Tyrion, three. Tyrion says no to the dress, but Tywin says yes. Catelyn, three. Rob must bring justice to men who commit treason against their kings. Interesting. Interesting. Jamie, three. On the move from Maidenpool to Duskendale, Jamie, Brienne, and Cleos are attacked. Cleos dies, rip, rip, but Jamie and Brienne are captured and, just like Stannis in this episode, end up short a hand. Heyo! Ha <laughs> I still got it, folks. Daenerys, too. Daenerys learns the subtleties of an unsullied army and begins to plan on how to acquire it. Also, some men talk at her. Mood. That could be any Danny chapter. That could be any Danny chapter. Just always saying chapter. things at her. You know, just always saying stuff at her. Not to her, just at her. Yep. Around her. <sighs> Alright. It's natural I get this one. Of course. Brand two. Are you sure you haven't heard this story before, Prince Bran? It's only the best chapter. Fucking best chapter. And that brings us to this chapter. A Storm of Swords, Davos 3, where Davos is a prisoner beneath the molten rock of the island, and soon he gets a new roommate. The worst kind of roommate. I'm just going to put that out there. <sighs> the cell is dark. It's dank. It's full of rats, but at least it's warm. It turns out the stony passages beneath Dragonstone are always warm. They're warmer as you go down. He thinks, perhaps the old tales are true. Dragonstone was built with the stones of hell. Man, Dragonstone really does seem like the underworld with uh, its dour Hades figure in Stannis. And I I really just, again, cannot wait to hear the Dragonstone chapters from Danny's POV, where she's probably going to come to it and be like, this place is amazing. And even yeah. if Dragonstone is built on the stones of hell, though, it seems like this is a place where Davos is healing right now. He came in quite sick, when he was at the dungeon, you know, he was delusional and plotting a murder. And <laughs> moods, bloody blisters and shivers, and he thought he was going to die. But Maester Pylos came to take care of him with hot garlic broth and then milk of the poppy. He is awakened to leech marks, realizing, oh, they leeched him as he slept to drain his blood, which sounds bad, but of course is actually an act of love and good. Yeah, love. Good. Good. He begins to eat heartier and his blisters vanish, the cough leaves, and then he once more has his strength. 
Yeah, one of his jailers, Porridge, is broad and squat with an iron-studded brigantine, and he brings Davos oat and porridge every day, sometimes with honey or milk. Damn. The other is Lamprey, old, sallow, wearing a doublet of white velvet with a ring of stars on the breast, and he brings Davos meat, mash, stews, once even Lamprey pie. I can't believe my Dragonstone tax dollars are paying for this. Like, Davos is down there eating like a king. You know what I ate today? An English muffin until dinner. I'm just kidding. That was my own problem. Um, Jokes aside, something really cool here is that Lamprey, or the guard formerly known as Lamprey, is uh, wearing Lord Sunglasses' doublet. Yes, the doublet is... Seven golded seven-point stars in a ring on white. So that is what is on this doublet. So they likely stripped Lord Sunglass down into his shifter naked when they burnt him. So I'm guessing Lamprey probably snagged it. Interesting. And I think we see that happen in some of the camps too, but... It becomes a pretty significant point, actually, in this chapter, which we'll come up to again. Yes. And so naturally, when this food is getting delivered by these guards, which... They're both just wearing, uh, I think it said this doublet is too short for him. That's the other tip off, by the way. Uh, but mm. it, as he's waiting, he starts to tell time through them, right? Because food is delivered at different times. But neither of these men will speak to him. And he starts trying to manipulate it. And uh, like specifically like tries to provoke them to get a rise out of them. And it completely reminded me of Ariane when she's trapped in the tower. Yeah, and how she tries to get information out of them. And eventually she does, right? There's definitely, I think, mm-hmm. some heavy shades of that Ariane chapter. And interestingly, some Princess in the Tower vibes, even though, you know, with Sansa's chapters, even though Davos is <laughs> um, a smuggler in the dungeon. And He's a princess to me. <laughs> and there's also, I think, an aspect of it that really reminds me of some of those early Ned chapters in A Game of Thrones when he himself is also imprisoned. Mm-hmm. He's also quite quite ill, right? Because he's just suffered this injury and also has some fevers when he's down there. He has his fever dream, of course, and gets a visit from someone. We'll talk about that in a bit. But somehow in the oblivion of the dungeons for Davos... It's kind of become a sort of welcome reprieve for him after everything that's happened in his life between, you know, the battle, losing his sons, right? It's it's a really healing providence where he gets great food, and it's better, of course, than the open-air dungeon he kind of had when he was, like, stuck on that tiny rock. Uh, and we talked a lot about the movie Castaway, which I still haven't seen. And he can just kind of go through the motions, right? And, and not have to deal with the world yet with his sons being dead other than really... You know, he knows two of the others are safe and asks for news about Devin. I do see the Ned really strongly, even more so this time rereading it. And it's almost, mm. it's not a one-to-one, but it has all no. of the same exact themes, right? Of protecting the children and doing things that he's not supposed to actually do in order to protect the children. And of course, being jailed for it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, these are just the themes that revolve around Davos as we move forward in this. So uh, it's interesting bringing up the Ned chapters for sure. Yeah. Davos marks the passage of days, as you said, by the food and the changing of torches. It's better than for Ned. He's like, I don't know when it is. And <laughs> Davos talks to them whenever they visit, again, asking about news about the war, if the king is well. He asks after Princess Shireen, his son, Devon, and Salador's son. 
No response comes to them, though for half a heartbeat, he thinks, maybe maybe Porridge is gonna say something to me? He looks like he wants to say something. But Lamprey, you know, he's strong-willed, he's not so weak. <laughs> Davos thinks, I am not a man to him. Davos thought, only a stone that eats and shits and speaks. Hmm. He's sounding mighty stone-hearted right now. Mm. He is, he is. What I want to kind of know is, like, is Lamprey, you know... Sometimes they make it sound like it's not appetizing, but here it's like because it's so rich. Like, is so is lamprey actually like delicious? It seems like it's a kind of eel, right? They're terrifying looking if you ever look up lampreys like stuff in nightmares. But I'm just like, does it taste <laughs> like, you know, the preparation for like Japanese like unagi, which is also eel and is delicious? And I just add lamprey to my list of food I gotta try one day. Yeah, apparently it's in the superclass of Cyclostomatas. It's a jawless oh. fish, is what oh. it's technically called. And it's actually inaccurate to call it an eel, is what I have just learned oh. from my research, Eliana, that I've done already in preparation for this podcast right this moment talking to you. <laughs> well, so uh, who even knows? Lampreys could taste truly like anything, but apparently quite rich. Is lamprey delicious? <laughs> they have a different taste like squid. Okay, I'd be oh, into it. I like squid. Yeah, similar to squid. I love squid. I think it, uh, there's a restaurant around here that does it nice and grilled, seared, and they mm-hmm. sprinkle lemon on it. Amazing. Ooh. Gotta have it. Yeah. <sighs> Fucks with that. He does throw this up, though, by the way. He throws up the lamprey pie that he gets because it's far too rich. So yeah. maybe no lamprey for me. We'll see. I mean, it we'll depends see. It depends on the day, right? Like, it depends on if you've been starving and struggling with exposure for weeks on a deserted island and then tried to murder your king's advisor and then got imprisoned and was recovering from all of that infection yeah. in a dungeon. Maybe let's start with some rice. You know what I mean? The yeah. brat diet. Ever heard of that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, Davos likes porridge the best. Interesting. Uh, and it's what you said. Porridge has... I know. Porridge has a queer kindness, right? He he also possibly feeds the rats, Davos has noticed. He thinks he hears porridge speaking to them like children, but he's not quite sure if it's that or if it's a fever dream. Again, very much so like Ned. And it is for real. It, he's got to be talking to his rats. I mean, I talk to my cats all the time like children, and they're literally glorified rats, right? I almost glossed past this in total. It was just really funny to me that he's just feeding the rats. I'm like, I love porridge. I mean, I don't know how I feel about it, but it's in the dungeon, so I guess, you know, he's like, whatever, they can be my friends here. But yeah, and other than that, I kind of wonder if we're supposed to be getting some vibes about, like, the legend of the Rat King from this. Oh, especially, especially like the Lamprey can. I mean, yeah. The, the, like you were talking about, the water connotations, right? The Merling Spears. Yeah, and I don't know that it's like channeling that exactly but there's something here that just kind of makes me think of that and and you know stannis's folks right when they were under the siege they were reduced to eating rats there's just a lot of stuff about mm-hmm. rats that makes me think of <laughs> uh both cannibalism and guest right and things like that so mm-hmm. especially when you have theon right uh getting in with ramsey soon and eventually mm reek as we come back to a dance with dragons and i think he does tie those themes really strongly together 
uh, there's also something that I've been thinking in the way that, you know, the, the Manderleys were Southerners and, you know, they had to go north to start their new lives out of exile from the South, got kicked out of the South. Yeah. So there's something in that as well for the idea of like Stannis isn't wanted in the South. No one wants him. And so he goes north. And I really think there's something intrinsically linking how George wrote that together. I like it a lot. That is interesting. And, you know, I haven't thought much about the Manderleys, but they are quite accepted. Like, they don't feel like they're Southerners, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, there's something going on there. Davos also wonders if there's something going on here in his life, if he's being kept alive. He's like, maybe the food's a tip-off, you know? I'm being fanned up for the fires. Uh, but he kind of doesn't want to know the reason, because he's just really hoping that it's not the same as for Lord Sunglass or Hubert of Rampton's sons who were given to the fire, and everyone took their clothes. And Dava's like, fuck, I should have just drowned myself if I was going to get burnt anyway. He thought he'd sooner feed the crabs in the flames. And, you know, I've learned quite a little bit about how fire kills people, especially in torturing situations, from The Burning God, uh, the last book of the Poppy War trilogy. And there's a demonstration, right, of a... Not demonstration, because it's written, but... Of a squirrel being burned and that it, you know, singes the fur and then the flesh, etc. burned alive and that it really it's like the asphyxiation or something that kills it after a while, after all the oxygen burns off and, you know, everything's been horrible because you're burning, so. Great, that's awful. Uh, yeah. Alright, so Davos is finishing his dinner. It's a couple days later. But suddenly he feels a flush and there she is, shimmering in all of her red, scarlet glory. It's Melisandre. It's one of those be careful what you wish for things, because we have Davos, right? He's longing for the sound of another human voice as he talks to the rats. And then suddenly he's like, fuck, why this one? Why me? <laughs> they end up exchanging some small talk, right? Like these little polite greetings. And uh, she asks him, do you lack for anything? And he's like, my kings, my sons, are you here to burn me? And she studies him through the bars, telling him the dungeons are a foul place with no light, Sir Davos. Or sorry, she doesn't actually call him Sir Davos, right? She doesn't. I find the way that they first greet one another very interesting. They just call each other by their names in a way. But it's not like he says my lady or gives her any courtesies. He just says Melisandre. So I wonder if that's meant to sort of be a an equalizing thing or, or almost disrespectful by not calling her by any title. Mm-hmm. And then Melisandre just calls him Onion Knight. <laughs> like, imagine you just greet someone Onion Knight after not seeing them <laughs> for a while. And she does call him Sir Davos at a couple of other times. And then there's some other times where she calls him Sir Onions. And no one else has called him that other than her, I think. I like that she's playing, like, as we know when we get to her chapter she she's playing her own game and she's completely not at all where any of us thought she was like even us that were like "Ah, i suspect melisandre's deeper than she is that chapter was such a mind-blowing pov no one was expecting it it was like whoa melisandre big deal and uh it's almost as if she's playing her own fun little game here obviously because she's withholding all this info from him and i really do like it (laughs) yeah i think she has the upper hand (laughs) She has the upper hand. She, you know, she's quite earnest in a lot of things, but I also feel like you kind of see she has a sense of humor here. I don't think of Melisandre necessarily yeah. is always having a sense of humor, but, and I don't know that it's like necessarily that mean-spirited. It's like, uh, they're ribbing each other, right? She calls them Sir Onions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're bantering. 
They are. They are. And there's a lot that but goes also, on in this banter. Also with the banter, Davos is like, this really is not fun. Yeah. Uh, he's like, I don't want Davos. to be flirting. She's like flirting. He's like, no, please. She's like, you're my prisoner and we're going to flirt. This is all that stands between you and the darkness, Onion Knight. This little fire, this gift of Verlor. Shall I put it out? No. He moved toward the bars. Please. He did not think he could bear that, to be left alone in utter blackness with no one but the rats for company. The red woman's lips curved upward in a smile. So you have come to love the fire, it would seem. I need the torch. His hands opened and closed. I will not beg her. I will not. I think you really captured the desperation in his voice there from that moment. Thank Which you. great. And I think I it, liked your playfulness in the second half, oh, by the way. You. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that that seemed right. Apparently she smiles. And yeah, the the desperation that Davos exhibits in that moment, it kind of really shows you this symbol for the torch, I think. It's that hope uh, for him in this moment. Mm. But also I think it's something that we can think about throughout the story. You know, without the torch, as he says, he's left in darkness and loneliness. All he'll have are the rats. And I think that we see what that hopelessness, not having a torch, being left alone, does for a lot of characters throughout this book, right? It's one of Danny's fears, I think. We see that in um, some of her dreams during A Clash of Kings. It's kind of what happens to Tyrion. And... You know, Melisandre isn't great at explaining it to Davos, but I think that is what Valor is to her, this torch and this fire of hope. And I think that's especially in many ways what Stannis is to Melisandre. Royal, of course, I think really curious to see how Stannis' demise is going to affect Davos, but it's obviously going to affect Melisandre as well. We also see in this moment that Davos refuses to beg for the torch to be kept, even though it's of great importance to him, and... You know, I think part of what keeps his hope alive is that pride that he has. And that that's... He's kind of standing opposite to Melisandre. That's where his pride is coming from in this moment. Yeah, you know, men like to be right, Eliana. Davos isn't sure <laughs> if he's right or not. Yeah. yeah. She explains that she is like the torch, an instrument of her lore to keep darkness away. He doesn't believe her. He calls her the mother of darkness with her actions on Storm's End, and she asks if he's so frightened of a passing shadow made by light. She admits Stannis can't make another son with her right now, or he may die, but says if Davos wants to serve the king's cause, he should come to her chamber, experience immense pleasure, like out of his mind, could never have this kind of orgasm with a plain woman like the wife who he refuses to talk to even though he murdered their children on accident. <gasps> and she would create something with Davos's life fire. Sorry, some of that was ad-libbed. So Davos is not into banging Melisandre. He calls having sex with her and birthing a shadow baby, a horror, saying that he wants no part of her or her god and prays to the seven. And so I wonder if there are people who are not like Stannis, who have it in them to actually make more shadow babies than just two, like whose fires burn hotter and brighter. And I kind of wonder, like, yep, that's that's what I'm saying. That's how I'm saying it. And um, I wonder if Beric is one of those. You know, he, he was able oh, to come back is. seven times. Oh, yeah, in many ways, actually. Um... <laughs> Oh, he is. I know it. I know it's big. I know it's big. 
And obviously, you know, god damn it. It is. That's that's clearly how he- the amount of shadow babies is measured, but beyond that, um I just know. We have to talk beyond that, uh sorry. It's so hard to switch between the different things now. We have to talk a little bit about Melisandre here in these chapters, of course, and and we will. Uh, you know, Melisandre's character here challenges Davos on a lot of things and presents these huge philosophical questions about the world and really, I think, sharpens her stance and therefore, in doing so, the stances of the characters around her. But I think that we are, of course, going to just want to preface that if we don't dive deep into Melisandre here, because we definitely will, of course, one day in her own POV chapter, and we do have plans, plans for when that chapter does eventually come out. Yeah, you know, I can't, uh, I can't give too many secrets away, but it's gonna sting like a red widow, I think. I'm hoping. You know, you'll see. Wait it out. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's gonna be a hot episode. Yeah, Melisandre asks, why does Davos cling to these false gods? As, you know, they didn't save devout Gunther Sunglass, and Davos has worshipped these gods, though, he says, his whole life. But Melisandre thinks he's being foolish. And, I mean, maybe he is, because after all, Davos has kind of been worshipping and serving a false god this whole time in many ways, Stannis. And part of me wonders if that's why Mel thinks he's lying. It's true. Or lying to himself. I'm... There's a lot of that, uh, this chapter. I'm finding a lot of these little hypocrisies, right? Of like, oh, well, I believe this. Well, doesn't that mean you're wrong, Melisandre or Davos? Doesn't that mean one of you is wrong here? <sighs> everyone's wrong so and complex. everyone's Such right. A... It is complex. Uh, it's very complex. Very gray. Maybe it's not black and white, but let's see what Melisandre thinks it is. You have never feared to speak the truth to kings. Why do you lie to yourself? Open your eyes, Sir Knight. What is it you would have me see? The way the world is made. The truth is all around you, plain to behold. The night is dark and full of terrors, the day bright and beautiful and full of hope. One is black, the other white. There is ice, and there is fire. Hate and love, bitter and sweet, male and female. Pain and pleasure, winter and summer. Evil and good. She took a step toward him. Death and life. Everywhere, opposites. Everywhere, the war. She expands on that in a second. She explains to Davos, There are two. There are two, Onion Knight. Not seven, not one, not a hundred or a thousand. Two. Do you think I crossed half the world to put yet another vain king on yet another empty throne? The war has been waged since time began, and before it is done, all men must choose where they will stand. On one side is R'hllor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Against him stands the Great Other, whose name may not be spoken, the Lord of Darkness, the Soul of Ice, the God of Night and Terror. Ours is not a choice between Baratheon and Lannister, between Greyjoy and Stark. It is death we choose, or life, darkness, or light. She clasped the bars of his cell with her slender white hands. The great ruby at her throat seemed to pulse with its own radiance. So tell me, Sir Davos Seaworth, and tell me truly, does your heart burn with the shining light of R'hllor? 
or is it black and cold and full of worms? <laughs> the way you read that last line was very beautiful. Thank you. It was very, oh, uh, like, and you can't do shit because you're literally behind these bars and I still have the torch. I'm not convinced she knows uh, actually titles now that I look at this because she goes Sir Knight. Sir, Sir Davos. It may, I'm not it, that's something to think about. No, she might not actually. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm being serious. I mean, she's like, she's not from Westeros, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, as far it's as we idea. know. It's adorable either way. It is. She lays her hand on Davos's chest to feel his truths, or his chest, and he tells her his heart is full of doubts. Melisandre sighs, saying, even now... He's good and honest in darkness and says it's good he didn't lie to her because she would have known. She says, the other servants oft hide black hearts in a gaudy light so R'hllor gives his priests the power to see through falsehoods. I love this line because obviously it has a ton of imagery of the others right here. Uh, Reminds me very much of the others and also some of this class consciousness that we're seeing Davos encounter throughout the story, including Alistair's ignorance about what Davos lost in the Blackwater right before Melisandre arrived. But yet, Alistair Florent expected Davos to know about his life, right? Like a Wikipedia celebrity article. You know, like, who are you, Jared Kushner? Shut up, Alistair. That idea of gaudy light reflecting there, the hiding black hearts and gaudy light even reminds you of the shiny tinny armor like Alistair's. Uh. It sounds gorgeous with those inlaid flowers, but as we learn on the Blackwater from countless other losses, impractical. Melisandre speaks of there being two gods, two higher powers, two sides, the great icy god of terror and darkness in the other, or R'hllor. Your heart has worms or it has light. Also, if this is true, doesn't that mean Stannis' heart has worms? I don't make the rules. Anyways, uh, Melisandre literally just made these rules out loud to us. This becomes more literal in the story. You hear Robert later called the King of Worms Mm. by Sandor Clegane against the Brotherhood Without Banners. We see royalty play these vicious war games and they end up consumed by worms. Axel himself says in Davos 4, a black worm grows in Stannis' soul. And even Catelyn isn't denied the worm theme in A Storm of Swords, right? Slow red worms crawled along her arms and under her clothes. It tickles. Melisandre's monologue will come into play as we finish A Storm of Swords up in the next handful of weeks and as Davos's heart is full of light in the actions he takes, like freeing Edric or in urging Stannis to go north and protect the people. But while Davos's heart is full of light, again, what about that worm growing in Stannis's soul we're talking about? Interesting. Thoughts, just thoughts. It's like, uh, Alexi almost makes me think that the fourth book could have been called A Feast for Worms. I'm not really joking. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have the same ring to it as A Feast for Crows, but it's a similar idea that's going on there, right? And I love that, that call out of his older brother having been the king of worms. Give them all heartworm medicine, like for dogs. Oh my god. And <laughs> What about Renly? He's now king of worms too. Or wait, no, he was king oh, of shadow is. death. Oh, that's true also. You're next. Well, I came from the the worms that came out of Stannis' other worm. Uh, oh <laughs> so, you know, it's a fascinating chapter, right? Because we have a question of Davos's morality, and he's doubting himself. He's in a vulnerable place right now after, you know, his sons have all died, and he's been 
dehydrated and infected and everything. And as we know, Davos has always kind of stood steadfast and believing in greenness and ambiguity, but part of that's exhibited now in how he feels. And that's a thing that I think is interestingly kind of in contrast to Ned. Ned feels a lot of guilt and doubt for himself in many ways, but he's pretty sure, he's very, very sure that he's doing the right thing in standing up against Joffrey until Varys comes, and he's the one who actually shows him, you know, the thing that you think is right isn't the way that it is, right? And Melisandre, as opposed to Melisandre here, who is the one who's very sure in her, in her morality, and... I think Davos doubting himself is something that we see in a lot of the other protagonists in this story, a lot of our other POV chapters like John and Danny. But there are people who don't necessarily doubt themselves, and I think we see that exhibited in some of the men in Stannis' camp, especially in Asha's chapters, and they're the ones who are truly terrifying. You know, the ones who are so sure in their morality that they can justify whatever they're doing, and there are other characters in this Those story. Those are some right? self-assured men. They are. They are very... To have confidence like that, truly. <laughs> Where do I get that? Um, and there are other characters in the story, right? Uh, like Jojen, who argue against Melisandre's point of view that there is light and there is dark, good and evil. Um, beyond just onions, right? Because Jojen has that line of if ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. And... Mm. We see it arise throughout the story over and over and over where the two things that seem separate or opposite are in fact one and the same. So in a way, I think kind of what the Faith of the Seven is, right? It's seven different things that seem different, but they're all one. Whereas, as opposed to two different opposed gods. Yeah, it's a great point. I definitely think the, the whole black and white, good or bad, but if Stannis' overarching story is going the way it's going, then by Melisandre's logic, worms for brains and heart. Worms for heart. Oh, wormst? Oh, wormst? <sighs> Melisandre asks Davos why he meant to kill her, and he says he'll tell her if she names his betrayer. He's praying it's not Salador, because Salador was obviously the one who could betray him, but it turns out Melisandre says she just knew. Man, she saw it in the fire. Davos doesn't understand how she saw that in the fire, but didn't foresee their fate on the Blackwater and the loss of his sons, his ship, and his men. You know, interestingly, Melisandre, in fact, did see that moment in her flames. <laughs> she just read it wrong as a future to avoid, but somehow actually made it happen. And in fact, Davos, you were there when Stannis and Mel Melisandre told you about the time that they saw this moment in their flames. You know, there's another flames moment in the next chapter. I'm really excited to talk about it then, but Axel Florent has some interesting flame stuff as well, where he claims to see things, and it's just interesting. This whole camp is really messy right now, is what I'm trying to tell you. Like, they are drama-loving, messy bitches, uh, and... They are. That's... <sighs> he also blames her, right? Like, so Davos is then like, well, you did this, it's all your fault. You did this. These were your flames. And she's like, those weren't my fires. If I was there, I would have saved the day, onions. And the reality is that his grace, she says, was surrounded by unbelievers who pushed him to forget his faith in the face of pride. And he was punished grievously for it. And Stannis learned from it. Okay, but did he, though? 
I know. Did he, though? I mean, I agree with the first half of what Melisandre says here, you did know? Did he learn a lesson? He was pushed to, by people to forget things and his pride, but did he learn anything from it? Debatable. I mean, I guess we learn right here that Jagirl is not letting him in the bed, right? I guess that's something. Well, like, she's I mean, like, we can't make shadow babies. But I think you could fuck without making shadow babies, right? No, I agree. It's just you can't, you gotta pull out. And I think that that's the rumors that are going on <laughs> in the North. They, That's what they say, right? That they share a bed, and they very well might. And Stannis has just gotta pull out. Hey, it's not treason if you pull out. We've been over this. You come it's on her back. not Isn't treason if you don't... What was the exact Come inside her. It's not you, don't you don't finish inside her. In... It's not treason if you don't finish Sign. inside her, Eliana. Oh, my uh, God. I miss... I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but I almost sometimes miss Jamie chapters. That was, that was a, a real ride. line from the A Song of Ice and Fire series. It's not treason if you don't finish inside her. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really sad because she calls it him forgetting his faith in the face of pride, but it's also like the, your your seduction and your, you know, here's Azora High, come again didn't work for him in his military playground, right? Like, the men pushed him, and they are like, no, that's not how you win this. And she was left behind. And Davos is, like, sitting in this cell, and people just keep showing up. And just like Danny in that chapter we talked about earlier, they're just talking at him, right? Like, Davos is sitting here so traumatized, yeah. and Alistair is, like, going off, like, oh, my life is so sad. I guess my nephew died, but, you know... Wah, wah, wah. I'm missing my favorite armor and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Melisandre comes in like, ah, onion night. You want to have sex? Like, you can get back in the good graces with his graces if you have sex with me. And the only thing Davos can even think here, and it's the saddest line, is, were my sons no more than a lesson for a king then? Davos felt his mouth tighten. <sighs> yeah, it's a, it's a great line that wonders about uh, his place and his class here. It's something that he kind of has uh, gnawing at the back of his head as to where he belongs and fits into all this. But, you know, the line does, for them to be a lesson for a king, it assumes that Stannis learned anything. And to repeat what you said earlier, Chloe, I mean, did he? Did he learn anything? I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Maybe not yet. Not yet. But unfortunately, Davos, your sons, died... Not as a lesson for a king, but out of a king's foolish pride, and he learned nothing from it. Melisandre goes on to explain to Davos that this war will not stop, and even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze. Stannis is not a man, nor a king. He's the warrior of fire, Azora High, as written in prophecy. When the red star bleeds and darkness gathers, Azora High will be born amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons of stone. A couple of the lines here, such as an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze, I'm pretty sure that's just like a different take on the line of a single grain of rice can tip the scale. One man may be the difference between victory and defeat from the Mulan animated movie in 1998. Two years before A Storm of Swords, just so you know, um, it's possible. And also about waking <laughs> dragons from stone. Granted, that came out, I think, that that was in Clash, but I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying... Anyways, uh, there's many interesting things to discuss regarding, again, the many things that Melisandre puts forth here. One of the things she, she asserts is that Sinus is not a man as Creston thinks he is, nor just a king as Davos thinks he is, but that he is Azor High, 
and that's his role. And I think that erases part of what the story, again, is saying about people, that they are more than just one thing or aspect. That sometimes men can cast different shadows based on where the light comes from and what kind of light, that there isn't just one light, as we discussed a few episodes ago. And Stannis is a man, and a king, just as Ned was a father, and a lord, and a friend, and a hand, and just as Davos himself is also a father, and a knight, and a smuggler, and a lord, and a hand, and even a traitor as he is now, and that Melisandre to some is the Red Woman, the Red Witch, a true queen, but also, as we're going to find out, she's also Melanie. And Melisandre's presence in this chapter, again, what's interesting is it, it so strongly emphasizes Davos's doubt and his unsureness, especially after the defeat and the loss that he suffered. And I mean, that makes sense, right? Why he feels that way. How can he be so sure of his choices when it led to the deaths of his sons? They were real to him. They weren't lessons to him. He loved them. And but it's Melisandre, in contrast, her solidity in her positions that I think really brings that aspect of Davos into focus. And again, we'll discuss this more another day, but I think we'll see more of Melisandre's own doubts in dance. She, she does a great job of putting on a front of confidence, and it will, I think, be this big emotional driver and wins with Stannis' own fall as she starts to question her own faith alongside Aaron Damhair Greyjoy's own religious crisis, which is also incredibly intense to... So it's a very intense religious crisis he's going through. But anyway, Melisandre kind of does the opposite of what Varys does for Ned in the cells again, despite bearing similarities to it. And she doesn't really force Davos to take any specific action. Like Chloe, you said, with Danny being visited by people, they just all kind of come and they're like, here are some interesting thoughts, Danny. <laughs> yeah. And are they interesting? We don't know. We just don't know. Well, and something in this that really spoke to me, I mean, there are a lot of Daenerys similarities, which we're going to find because Dragonstone, Stannis, you know, rightful thrones, yada yada. You've read the books. This is a really Love interests of Jon Snow. Yeah, love interests. Oh my God. <sighs> this is a reread comedy podcast, as you all know. So... The line before, even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze, screams of Danny's dragons, right? I mean, mm. that is dead-ass eggs that you just thought weren't going to grow. And then she throws them in the fire, and boom, a spark, a great blaze. Um, and her I think there's herself, a lot going on right? there with that imagery. Yeah, yeah, her herself as well. And her hair. Yeah, she seemed like she was... Her hair, yeah, it. she seemed like, you know, at the end of A Game of Thrones, like, she, it was on the verge of the end of their line, a stillbirth, her brother dead, uh, and her feeling like the last Targaryen, and then here we are. Yeah, a rebirth. The bleeding star has come and gone, and Dragonstone is the place of smoke and salt. Stannis Baratheon is a Zora High reborn. Is he, though? <laughs> is he, though? <laughs> <sighs> is he? <laughs> Davos is in big doubt of all this. He's like, Rilor, Shmrlor, and Mel's like, you'll serve him once more. She leaves him in a swirl of skirts and that ambiguous, vague-ass phrase and just, like, goes. But she leaves the torch and her scent lingers, which I believe we know from John. It's cinnamony. Like, cinnamon. Like, autumn. Oh, that's right. She smells like autumn. Yes, she smells like pumpkin spice. Oh, my God. 
He returns to the sound of his rats, thinking ice and fire, and of all the duality that Melisandre spoke of, and that he can't deny Relor's power, not after seeing what crawled from her womb, or the knowledge that she's learned in the flames. He's especially glad Salador didn't sell him out, but Mouse spying on him freaks him out a little, and the concept of serving R'hllor a little more than that. Yeah, he stares into the torch's flames, unblinking, unyielding, trying to see something, but only sees flames, and exhausted, he goes to bed. Three days later, he gets a new roommate. It's Sir Alistair Florent, yelling madness and just making a total scene. He's being dragged by guards in R'hllor garb, and his brother, Axel, is trailing behind him, watching. He was an older man, tall and slender, with silvery gray hair, a pointed beard, and a long, elegant face twisted in fear. Where is Selyse? Where is the queen? I demand to see her. The others take you all! Release me! The guards paid no mind to his outcries. Yeah, Porridge opens the cell for him, and Davos thinks for an instant that, ooh, I should rush them and escape, but then he's like, that's ridiculous. Alistair is then plopped into Davos's cell to enjoy a fellow traitor's company while screeching that he is no traitor! He did not come inside! Um, Davos notes his speech as being highborn and thinks that, <laughs> that his birth will not serve him here. And then Davos catches Alistair as he is charged into the cell forcefully, but then he wrenches away, staggering to the closing door and shouting, No! <coughs> that he is the king's hand! Uh, anyway, so the way that the jailers are here, that's definitely true. It's kind of fascinating here that the cells kind of become a very equalizing place. We talked a little bit before about how uh, the names and the way that Davos and Melisandre refer to one another uh, serve to be a sort of like power or dynamic sort of play. And I think that the cells kind of wipe that slate for a lot of people, and maybe the cells are this underneath area beneath Dragonstone is a place of rebirth in a, as well. It's the womb of the earth in Dragonstone, and mm. I mean, Davos is later reborn, right? Well, as in no longer ill, and eventually c climbs to a higher position. Yeah, absolutely, and literally in the next chapter that's what he does right like he quite literally climbs up the stairs like you were saying earlier it's very underworld right it's very he was below mm -hmm. the ground and he climbs up and he comes to the surface and you get this whole kind of thing in davos 4 of him seeing no light no light no light and then finally he sees light and he gets to the storm's drum and uh it, it's really well written compared to this where he's just been shut down here but yeah. did this not read, like, first DUI for Ax for Alistair Florent, right? Oh like, God, rich yes. person's first time in jail. He's like, like do you know who shit. I am? Yeah, And absolutely. I love that he's, like, all like, I'm not a traitor. And then Davos, as we're about to get to, is like, so what'd you do? And he's like, everything a traitor would do. <laughs> <laughs> but not coming inside again. Uh, hey, it's not treason if you don't finish inside, mm -hmm. everyone. Yep. Uh, and... Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely that, and uh, Alistair, it's kind of, Alistair's kind of fun down here. He's an interesting character because he's not as obnoxious as Axel, or as weaselly as Axel, but he's just more privileged, and that's also obnoxious and very, like, I don't know, just like an heir of a, a rich dude that is worried about his ships, and worried about his house, 
Yeah. His many and, houses. Yeah, pretty much. But he he's interesting down here, especially compared to Davos. Yeah. And Davos knows who he is almost immediately. He like yeah. at first he's like, Who oh, it's Alistair. And Alistair at first is the same way. He's like, Who are oh, Onion Knight? He accuses Davos of trying to kill Melisandre, which Davos does not deny. Instead, he kind of reacts surprised at his appearance to see how the mighty have fallen, exclaiming, Wow, last time I saw you, you wore red gold armor with inlaid lapis flowers on the breastplate at Storm's End. Alistair apologizes for his appearance and explains, I lost most of my goods when the Lannisters overran my camp. He says he escaped with the mail on his back and the rings on his fingers. We get a quote. He still wears those rings, noted Davos, who had lacked even all of his fingers. No doubt some cook's boy or groom is prancing around King's Landing just now in my slashed velvet doublet and jeweled cloak, Lord Alistair went on, oblivious, but war has its own horrors, as all men know. No doubt you suffered your own losses. My ship said Davos. All my men. Four of my sons. May, uh, may, may the Lord of Light lead them through the darkness to a better world, the other man said. May the father judge them justly and the mother grant them mercy, Davos thought, but he kept his prayer to himself. The seven had no place on Dragonstone now. I love that hesitation from Alistair for a split second uh, when he's about to give this sort of blessing to Davos. It's almost like he's about to say, say the exact same prayer that Davos says like two seconds later in his head uh, and then remembers, oh wait, no, that's right, I converted publicly. He does this in the next chapter, actually, to his brother, I'm pretty sure, too. He actually slips up to his brother when he's again crying about being a traitor, yada yada. Yeah. The people, they love calling each other on that shit in Stannis's camp. <laughs> Again, they are messy, dramatic motherfuckers. They they are. You know, earlier we talked about the Lamprey Guard taking the doublet off of Lord Sunglass. And something that really stuck out in this passage is when Alistair complained about his slashed velvet doublet and his jeweled cloak. So because it is, you know, a passion project of mine, I took the time to see what I could find about doublets and cloaks in chapters surrounding this in King's Landing. And I think I found a match, Eliana, for this doublet and cloak. It might not be real, but I think symbolically, like, it, it makes sense. So stick with me here. A Storm of Swords, Tyrion Five. Bronn, tell the boy what you see. Bronn looked very much the knight today in his new doublet and cloak, the flaming chain across his chest. Are there descriptors of that new doublet and cloak? No, that's it. That's all I get. But in my opinion, because these chapters are so close in proximity to each other, and because literally he says, oh, someone's probably wearing it. Not only that, but Bronn's also kind of this perfect person to pick up this cloak and doublet, because as we see Bronn, he starts off as this tiny character, just a sellsword, and then he begins to get more responsibility by hiring the 800 sellswords for Tyrion for the Blackwater, and then moving upward from there, gaming the system and becoming Sir Bronn of the Blackwater. Him taking the armor is representative of how easily you see things like Brightwater Keep that was originally Alistair's given over to Garland Tyrell. And the dark side of Stannis in Davos 4 when he says we'll make new lords, yeah, that's great, but, uh, 
there's the opposite side to that. You could just make new lords whenever. They can make more of them, anytime. Bronn is knighted after the Blackwater, and he ends up marrying into the Stokeworth family, exploiting and murdering part of the family, which then makes him and Tanda lord and lady of Stokeworth. Regarding Davos's interiority on religion, it also really is reminding me of Sansa and King's Landing, as you mentioned, with the princess and the tower vibes, like her having to watch her every move in King's Landing, lest she say something wrong and lose her head, but yet at the same time thinking all of the snarky things that they really wish they could be saying. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, here, in the cells, Davos can say whatever the fuck he wants, kind of. Uh, yeah. Alistair's still kind of watching himself, but... Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point to point out the, the doublet, and I realize now that's why Davos is like, it's interesting that Lord Alistair would uh, say some cook's boy or groom is prancing around in his now-slash-doublet and jeweled cloak, uh, and is oblivious, because... I mean, there's someone here, right, who's prancing around in someone else's old doublet, and he's like, well, you better hope that that actually doesn't really happen to you, Alistair, because <laughs> then that might mean you'll get burned, which he does. So, look at the clothes yeah. of the people around you. Davos Davos has his fashion hour. Maybe it's just not like, maybe you just shouldn't be judging people on their clothes when you're literally in a fucking dungeon, however many feet below the earth. Or the Westeros Earth, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Davos kind of does a little, though, but only just to troll. Well, but also he has to be aware of those situations, because these are people that could have him yep. jailed for looking at them the wrong way. I mean, it's different when you have to case people just in case you're going to be, you know... Yeah, for him yeah. it's self-preservation. Yeah. Exactly. So Alistair didn't lose his son necessarily but he did lose sir imri our favorite person from the blackwater his brother's son imri was the guy that led them very blindly up the rush and did not even pay attention to the towers and davos that davos then thinks davos was not like to forget him this is like having a conversation with one of your corporate overlords who's never set foot in the warehouse in his entire life by the way like it's just literally mindless you're getting nowhere Davos asks if his yes. son, Merrick, who was the ore master on Imri's ship, was found, but no survivors were found on Fury. Both Imri and Merrick were lost, says Alistair, and the war, too. Wow, Davos is still, you know, he's still holding out that hope, right? He still got that torch for if any of his sons were, were found. But here, you know, Alistair, there's a moment where Davos thinks that Alistair looks defeated, and he's in a way, the way that Alistair's acting, he's, I think, a broken man or starts leading us up mm -hmm. into the idea of that. And I think that perhaps a sort of version of why the North believes that you need to behead deserters of the Watch. You know, Ned's like, they're dangerous. They're willing to do anything in order to preserve themselves. That's kind of Alistair here, right? He does seem willing to do anything. He's going to sell out his king. You know, another thing here is that it almost feels like a test, right? Like Davos is saying... What about my son, Merrick? He was the ore master on Imri's ship. That's a pretty prestigious role, right? That's a higher role for someone of Davos's birth's son. And he's very proud that his sons got as far up as they did. And if you're the ore master on a ship, it's likely you're going to be talking to the supervisors, right? On the floor. And possibly even talking to the bigwigs once in a while. So it also kind of feels like an asshole test of like, you know, my son, Merrick. Do you? Do you yeah. know? It also, uh, the, when you put it like that, reminds me a little of when Dunk 
you know, the the sort of way that we characterize who sucks and who doesn't in the Dunkin' Egg novellas during the Hedge Knight, where Dunk's like, did you know Sir Arlen of Pennytree? And people are like, I don't give a shit about Sir Arlen of Pennytree. <sighs> yeah. And Baylor Brickspear's like, yes, I loved him. Well, he didn't say it yeah. like that, but he was like, I remembered him. Look, we all read the books. He said it like that. <laughs> no but it is it's like the are there no true knights among you like that's how davos is he's totally sitting here like are, there's no true lords none of it's fucking real uh just before you know next chapter when he's like oh well i guess it's real now <laughs> it's me i will be the real one uh but yeah again alistair seems pretty defeated and davos recalls again what melisandre said of embers and the ashes igniting great blazes he's just like, hmm, see how Alistair ended up here. Davos says Stannis will never yield, and Alistair calls it folly. Stannis Baratheon will never sit the Iron Throne. Is it treason to say the truth? Is it? A bitter truth, but no less true for that. His fleet is gone, save for the Lysini, and Salador San will flee at the first sight of a Lannister sail. Most of the lords who supported Stannis have gone over to Joffrey or died. I thought that Stannis' men loved him and loved following him. Listen, Eliana, all the king's horses and all the queen's men couldn't put Stannis back together again. You know, similar vibes to that is Alistair saying these bitter truths about Stannis, I think, quite has shades of Jorah and Daenerys admitting, finally, that Viserys is never going to take the Iron Throne, that he doesn't have it in him. And I think it's interesting that Alistair talks about these truths that one needs to admit to themselves. Because... It's the kind of truth that Davos isn't admitting yet about Stannis and the Iron Throne. And Stannis certainly isn't admitting it aloud to anyone. I'm sure Stannis has his doubts and wonders if he can do it. Uh, but we don't have his POV. Though I don't know that Davos... I'm, I'm not sure if Davos truly believes that Stannis will never sit the Iron Throne. So much as he just like hasn't admitted to himself that it doesn't matter if Stannis does to him or not. He has this fierce loyalty for Stannis that goes beyond whether or not he's on the throne. He truly believes in his heart that Stannis is the king. That's where he believes power resides. Does for him. Yeah. I don't know uh, what he'll have to do till he finally gets burnt with it, right? Because he got burnt with it already. How many more yeah. sons can you lose, man? You gotta go home to make some more first. <sighs> Lord Keltigar was captured and bent the knee. Monfred Valerian died with his ship. Sunglass was burnt. Lord Bar Emmon is fat, fifteen, and feeble. Those are now the lords of the narrow sea, with House Florence supplying its power against four of the kingdoms. Alistair tried to forge a peace, he says, to salvage it. That was why he was put in the dungeons. He meant to save lives. Salador had promised to get his terms to King's Landing to Lord Tywin, who... Sidebar, Alistair calls him a man of reason. Interesting. Davos continues to ask what the terms are because Alistair, like, refuses to tell him. He gets distracted by the shit bucket, the scent of it. It's just a pail in the corner, and he's used to the privies, you know. Yeah, and I actually kind of like, there's a bit of wordplay here, I think, because... Davos is trying to goad uh, Alistair into divulging what he did, this terrible crime. It's kind of a secret, kind of not. But in this moment, he, it says in this quote, The Pale, said Davos, gesturing, we have no privy here. What terms? And again, Davos is nudging for those terms to be disclosed because not 
there is no privy here, right? There's no place to, like, just... There's no cool place where you can go pee or poo. But also, there's a wordplay with privy in terms of, like, no sharing of secret knowledge, none of that sort of privilege, none of that privacy. There are just no secrets down here in the dungeons, and both of them down here, they're both traitors, and therefore equals, and only the rats are really the ones interested in interacting with them. To be fair, the rats are the rats are better than some of the lords. Rats are better than people. Pretty much. Something I don't remember all the words from that song in prison. <laughs> Either. Alistair Florent finally divulges it. Lord Stannis will give up his claim and retract what he said of Joffrey's bastardy in the condition he's accepted back into the king's peace as Lord of Dragonstone and Storm's End. He vowed the same for Brightwater Keep and the Florent Lands, and he sealed the deal with a nice bow, Shireen Wedding Tommen, and he thought these were excellent terms. He's like, even you can see that these are good terms, Davos. Damn. Really, really read the room. Alistair. Even you. Yeah. Even it, me. Davos is like, okay. He's like, yes, said Davos. Even me. Unless Stannis should father a son, such a marriage would mean that Dragonstone and Storm's End would one day pass to Tommen, which would doubtless please Lord Tywin. Meanwhile, the Lannisters would have Shireen as hostage to make certain Stannis raised no new rebellions. Hmm. That's going to go well, right? Sounds good. Oh, yeah. Sounds sounds good. That That's never stopped anyone before. Like, I don't know, some guy named Balon, but whatever. You know, I'd feel a lot sadder about all of this for Alistair if, A, he wasn't a Florent, because <laughs> fuck the Florents, uh, and B, if those weren't, like, giving away the entire everything, like the kitchen and the sink... Like, the bathroom, too? How about you throw in the fucking dining room? Throw in a two or three bedrooms while you're at it? Like, what the hell, man? That's everything. That's literally everything. Yeah. Like, no wonder you're down here. He, like, left basically no pride. There was no pride there, and pride is important to Stannis, if nothing else. You know, there's a lot of treason going around these days in A Song of Ice and Fire. Right? There's a lot of treason. Uh, and Alistair Florence treason is not the only treason that we see in this series. I know Definitely you're surprised. Not. Bear with me now, everyone. Uh, but you know who I'm going to compare this to? You might be a little surprised. It's another chapter that's pretty recent, actually. We talked about it in our lightning round. Oh. To Catelyn. Uh, Alistair Florence treason in comparison to both Rickard Karstark and, I guess, Catelyn. Uh, next chapter, we'll talk a lot more about Stannis and his judgment of treason in comparison to some of the other kings. Spoiler, I actually almost agree with Stannis until, you know, he does eventually let Alistair be burnt. But uh, Stannis is not as harsh on his treasonous motherfucker right away as Rob is on his. So we will talk about that with Quinn. But Davos 3 and 4 have strong parallels to those Catalan chapters occurring around. In both situations, Alistair and Rickard, and even Catelyn to an extent, spoke with the king's tongue and crossed a line while their king was still deliberating on what their choice or the right thing was to do. There's even a little Catelyn in this, in her giving Jamie away in hopes of freeing the girls, or even beforehand, before any of this went down, in forging relationships with the phrase in exchange for passage, right? Just like Shireen and Tommen. 
Alistair is reported as burnt as a sacrifice and a feast for crows. Rob sentences both Rickard's men and Rickard to death. We may pick more of these treason parallels up as we go along with Catelyn's plot in freeing Jamie and Davos freeing Edric. Interesting. And I think that's that's a great point and giving us that insight because I think that at least Davos speaking with Alistair here gives him some good insight for when he has to talk to Stannis next chapter and be like, so this is what this is what the people think. And, I mean, we get a much more humanized view of why Catelyn does what she does versus Alistair, but it seems that Alistair, as you said, he, he might have given Tywin maybe too sweet of a deal, but <laughs> he could have felt a little pushed up against the wall, too. Mm-hmm. We'll see We'll see how that plays out at, towards ends of this chapter, and, I mean, what did his grace say to Alistair regarding all of this? And Alistair remarks that well, Stannis is always with the Red Woman, and he's just not in his right mind. He he speaks of a stone dragon and warns of this. He says, did we learn nothing from Arian Brightflame? From the Nine Mages? From the Alchemists? Did we learn nothing from Summerhall? No good has ever come from these dreams of dragons. I told Axel as much. <laughs> and it's just here, me. I'm like interesting, thinking of uh, the impending second dance that we will one day get. In <sighs> the doom of King's Landing, or or a lot of places tumble a second Tumbleton. fourth Tumbleton. I mean, the Tumbleton was yeah. never rebuilt, but what will be the next Tumbleton? You know, maybe the Reach is going to be a thing again. We'll see. We'll see. Dorn probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, Teor Tolland says as much. I saw them dancing everywhere they went. People died. Just gonna sit my tea for a second. Hold on. Alistair says that Stannis gave him his seal, his leave to rule. The hand speaks with the king's voice, but even Davos knows, not in this, buddy. You went too far. Davos says Stannis won't yield when his claim is still just, and he won't unsay the words against Joffrey because he thinks they're true. He would never marry Shireen to Tommen because he's born of incest. Davos says his grace would sooner see Shireen dead than wed to such. Oh. Oh. Huh. Interesting. And I, oop. Oh. <clears throat> he what? Well, you know, that, that might line, be sorry. truer. Yep. Yep. And then Davos says Stannis will choose to die a king. Yeah, this is in response to Alistair saying, like, he has no other choice, and Davos is like, he does. This is his other choice. And it's, I think, a really fascinating exchange here at the end with Alistair. You know, he, of course, as I said, perceives that Stannis has no choice. Because in that Stannis might, in fact, choose to die a king, would choose to see Shireen die than wed as such in regards to Tom. And I think... I mean, Stannis is really very intent in general on giving people shit choices. That's like what he does. He's like, all of you free folk gotta convert so you can cross the wall, or you can just die out there where the others are. Or, for example, in two chapters or so, right, when he thinks that, you know, Lord Celtigar's men could have chosen to to die instead of bend the knee to Joffrey. Or also, like, Melisandre, right, who's under uh, Stannis's employ, who's, like, really big on people making a choice like on their side in this war only two sides and you know it's a story right overall people with difficult choices 
choosing has always been hard, like John and Eamon. And it's 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 just interesting, right? Because there's people like that, but there's also a lot of people who are so committed to their path that they see no choice. Like, for example, Brienne at the inn at the crossroads, who, as the new hound attacks, uh, mm-hmm. sees that there is no chance and no choice in her eyes. Yes, and... I think the break before he bends is the most significant thing, right? And it's exemplified in what Davos just said. I think Davos knows Stannis and understands men like Stannis probably a lot better than most people, including you, listener, or me, or Eliana. Uh, mm-hmm. But I personally am going to choose to trust Davos in this in this whole manner. He seems like he has his head on, maybe not straight right now, but he has his head on. He does. He does. He's getting it on much straighter than it was before after after the Blackwater. And, and we end the chapter with this exchange about what it means for Stannis to die as a king. And us with him. Is that what you desire, Onion Knight? No, but I am the king's man and I will make no peace without his leave. Lord Alistair stared at him helplessly for a long moment. And then began to weep. Well, that's it for uh, this chapter. It ends. It ends on this helpless note for Lord Alistair. It, it's actually, I think, fairly a brief chapter. There's a lot in it, but it's, yeah. I think, a lot of things that are introducing us and transitioning us into the into the next one. And it's written very well, and you can tell that George put a lot of thought into a lot of these Davos chapters and. The questions put forth in them. Yeah, it really makes you think. You know, it really makes you think. Mostly about Stannis and often. I do like the Davos, but I'm excited to get a reprieve, right? I'm excited for dance, and I'm excited uh, to see him go on some more adventure into some torrential, treacherous waters. So, excited to kick some ass with Quinn next week on Davos 4. And we'll be back in the new year, probably, with the rest. Get ready. Yeah. And again, you know, we will be releasing more of that holiday schedule and what you can all expect next week as well. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. We're over on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon or at Gmail, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. If you want to send us a quick message about the episode or any thoughts you want to share, theories, just say, hey, send pictures of your dog or your cat or your animals, birds. We're down with whatever. Yeah. Or if you have any thoughts on the taste of lampreys, if you've tried a lamprey, (laughs) please let me know. I'm looking for food reviews. And of course, you know, in order to keep up with us and whenever those episodes come out, feel free to subscribe to us on many of the platforms that we are on, such as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, where this is hosted, who has betrayed us recently, and um, (laughs) Spotify, Acast, Stitcher... Pandora, uh, Amazon podcasts, yep. iHeartRadio. Radio, Radio, uh, yep. There's more, but we won't go on. Uh, not YouTube, who's also betrayed us. <laughs> and if you want to check out these episodes, we actually have early release for patrons in the $10 and up tier, as well as access in the $10 and up tier to a Discord server, a private Discord server where we chit-chat about A Song of Ice and Fire, his dark materials, mostly food. 
We do brunch monthly, where we all hang out, brunch or a happy hour, and we all chit-chat. It's really fun. Come on over. And you can also check out special Patreon episodes, right? We release bonus episodes every month. Every other month is a Song of Ice and Fire themed, and last month's was on Aegon III and his Regency. And this month, December, will be on his Dark Materials. So look out for that at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of this month's Patreon episode being about the His Dark Materials television series, probably. Just to, I, I'm, I'm giving away secrets here. But we are, of course, covering weekly the His Dark Materials television show uh, that is currently airing on BBC and HBO. And, you know, we are really excited. It's another book series that we are reading through here on this podcast. So check those out if you're watching them. It's It's nice to see a book adaptation get some you know, actual real love and respect from the people doing it. Yeah, I don't uh, have any issues with my favorite adaptation of a favorite book series. It's pretty good on HBO and BBC. I don't have any issues. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I've never been, uh, you know, burned before. Never. Never. Well, here's to not being burnt in the future. Fingers <laughs> crossed that this HBO adaptation, BBC adaptation, continues Truly. being the best because it is. It's being great. Tune in next week. We'll see you with Quinn. As always, I'm Chloe. And I'm Eliana. Goodbye. Bye.